2: This is Darts and Letters. I'm Ren Bangert, a producer here on the show. This is our last day of our Politics of Video Games themed week. If you haven't heard, we're highlighting some of our favorite past episodes of Darts here on the New Books Network all summer long. Each week, we're exploring a new theme. Next week, we'll be looking at the politics of expertise, so stay tuned for that. And we'll be launching new episodes of the show here on the network starting on September 12th. We've got our lead producer Jay Coburn hosting again on today's episode and he gets personally involved in the subject matter. You'll get to hear him work on his Super Smash Brothers skills with an eSports coach and he'll also take you through the good and the bad of the world of eSports. It's a booming industry with huge potential but some of the long-time issues that come with other corporatized sports seem to be taking hold in the virtual leagues as well. I'll turn it over to Jay to tell you more.
3: From Cited Media. This is Darts and Letters. I'm Jake Coburn. Darts and Letters is a podcast about ideas and politics, and sometimes it's an excuse to play video games and call it work. Oh good (laughs) This is me, your intrepid reporter, being coached by the ninth best Smash Bros Ultimate player in the world. So yeah, I'm playing video games at work.
0: The moment you start like jumping, so I see you jump, I know you can't shield, and I know I can swing my sword at your direction.
3: And this is what my coach Samuel Busby does for work as well. He's a competitive Smash Bros player. He goes by DeBuzz online and in tournaments.
2: Choose your fighter!
3: If you're not familiar with Smash Bros, it's a bit like if Mario Kart were a fighting game. You can play as characters from most of Nintendo's games, and you win by knocking your opponent off the screen rather than just beating them to death. I love it because of that. It's all about movement, and good players can get really creative with how they win a match. Nintendo never intended Smash to be an eSport though, if you don't mess with the settings, it is chaos. Weapons spawn randomly, and there are stage hazards that just end the game. It would be too random to be actually competitive. But players rarely stick to what developers intend. Now, Smash Bros is played as an e-sport.
1: Afraid as Mintos up two stocks, and Rocky's got all but a dream left. That was actually a nerf Junior got in this game. Tell me, was the, uh, the Mega Koopa? If it just hits your shield, it just rolls over and dies. I've seen that.
3: But you can really tell Nintendo are not entirely comfortable with this. They used to deliberately sabotage Smash as an eSport. They included a thing called tripping in Smash Bros Brawl, which literally your character would just randomly trip over at times. And considering Nintendo owns the IP, that can be a real problem for competitive Smash players and leagues. Because esports have this fundamental imbalance of power that traditional sports don't to the same extent. One company effectively owns each game completely. They control the right to broadcast, rule changes, balance patches, everything. Players are at the mercy of the developers. And if the developers don't want to play ball, nothing can make them. All the power is with one company even if they don't directly control every dollar in the sport it still exists at their mercy that's annoying if you're playing for fun but when this is your livelihood it can be a real problem so i've spent the past couple of weeks immersing myself in esports culture to try and get a sense of what it's like to make this your job like my coach DeBuzz. buzz
0: yeah i get a salary but i'm technically considered a uh, contracted Oh right. Okay. Yeah. So technically speaking, I'm a self-employed person.
3: He's in the top right. ten, so he's signed to a team, Team Liquid.
0: I mean, the, like you know, they're a good org, but definitely a lot of like players on teams have to think about like their long-term like plans, like because you, not that you never know when like you know it's not gonna work out, but exactly, it's not a long-term you know, employment. You know, there's no like types of like jobs here. Like twenty years from now, you know, I might be doing this, I might not be. Who knows? Yeah uh even five years or two years from now who knows would you want to be doing this in five years time oh maybe this is a pretty chill job to have yeah yeah
3: it's fun then it's like you still find it fun
0: it has really good days and really bad days. you know like some days are just obscenely stressful uh various reasons very busy sometimes as well but then sometimes i get to go to you know vacation for like a week at a time and just like chill and i'm just you know playing whatever games i want that's cool or the days you know i do these kind of like lessons i have like a really like like conversation stuff and it doesn't feel like I'm doing like work.
3: To get an hour of coaching from a top 10 player, I just went to a website called Metafy and paid $75, picked the time I wanted, and that was that. Smash might be one of the smaller esports, but I was still kind of shocked at how cheap that is. I did take a look at one of the bigger games, League of Legends, and the prices were similar though. Because unlike traditional athletes, esports players are often super accessible. They have to be. If you're going to be a professional gamer, especially if you're not in the top 10, you need a bunch of revenue streams. As well as a player, you have to be an influencer, a coach, a content creator. Good morning, Aglimation, yeah. Hope you're having a good one so far. If you go to Twitch right now, you'll be able to watch some of the world's top esports competitors live streaming right now. They do it for hours every day and
1: you can watch for free. It's pretty likely you'll be able to catch a tournament as well. Every eSports event is live streamed for free on either Twitch or YouTube, which is actually a bit of a problem because, you know, traditional sports, a lot of the money comes from selling media rights to broadcasts. um, And there's a tradition of eSports just giving that away for free.
3: So today we're looking at why that's a problem
1: with games journalist Alexander Lee. I was an eSports competitor myself. During my four years in college and in high school before that, I would often go to Super Smash Bros Melee tournaments and became a a pretty decent fixture of the competitive scene in Boston, which is where I was living at the time. Alex is an esports reporter at Digiday, but he
3: started out freelancing for ESPN. They were beginning to cover Smash Bros tournaments around the time Alex graduated from college.
1: I remember reading some of the other freelancers they had writing about Smash back then and thinking this is pretty bad, like I can definitely do better. So at 21 years
3: old, Alexander Lee, who was not a journalist, not a writer, cold pitched
1: ESPN. When they first accepted my, my first pitch, I popped off. I was literally sitting at my desk in my day job at the time, and I kind of just jumped up and did a fist pump because of that exact realization, like, wow, ESPN is gonna pay me to write about Smash. The funny thing is their rates were not that good back then, And in general, I just accepted much worse freelance rates than I would now back then because of that novelty that just enthused me so much of getting to write about esports for money.
3: I think anyone who works in a creative field probably recognizes something of themselves in Alex right now. I definitely do. The first day I got paid to work in radio, I just couldn't believe how lucky I was. But then you settle into your career, you get a bit older, and you recognize your job for the labor it is. My job is fun and creative, but it's still work, and I still deserve to be treated fairly. The same goes for eSports players, and their jobs are actually a lot harder than I perhaps ignorantly expected. We'll be back with a less starry-eyed version of Alex to explain why after this. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. Back to Alexander Lee. I thought a useful place to start with him was to figure out how esports leagues differ from more traditional ones that you might know more about already. The NFL,
1: for example. The number one thing is that the NFL is a profitable business and esports is not. No esports league is bringing in enough revenue to be profitable on its own. The reason why a lot of big game developers fund their esports leagues now is more as a very, very effective marketing campaign. Esports drives the casual consumption and purchasing of games. So in order to talk about the differences between esports and traditional sports like the NFL, it's first very important to point out that the NFL is a profitable business built around a game that is in the public domain. Anyone can play pickup football. Esports are a marketing write-off that is built around products that are developed and sold by capitalists. Everything that is done in esports right now, you have to kind of consider it just like a really effective and exciting marketing expense. I think there are a lot of people in the space who see it becoming profitable in the long run. All of the teams and organizations in the space, I, I believe at least initially invested in esports because they saw it going there, but we're a long ways away from that. In terms of the actual revenues brought in, I mean, the revenue streams for esports and traditional sports are very different as well. I already mentioned broadcast rights, but I believe more money comes into the nfl for selling broadcast rights to uh, major broadcasters than any other revenue stream for the nfl and that is something that every esports league provides to its fans for free
3: so it sounds a little like part of this and part of the sort of core point of why it's maybe not profitable comes almost down to intellectual property so do the esports leagues do they have to like Say I want to run a Smash Brothers tournament, do I have to license some rights from Nintendo or something to broadcast that? Or do they just kind of go, uh, um, this is marketing, so let's let it slide?
1: The answer is both. Absolutely, every broadcast technically needs to get the permission of the developer or license the game to be broadcast. A lot of the big esports leagues, like the Overwatch League, the Call of Duty League, or the various League of Legends leagues, are owned and operated by the developers themselves, so, I mean, it's it's a complete non-issue. But for smaller esports like Super Smash Bros, it has been a tremendous controversy over the years. Famously, uh, in 2013, when Evolution Championship Series, which is the biggest uh, fighting game tournament annually, brought Super Smash Bros. Melee back for the first time since 2007, the tournament was nearly shut down by Nintendo. Nintendo caught wind that Evo was holding a Super Smash Bros. tournament. And initially, they reached out to ask them to shut down the entire competitive event. When that didn't work out nintendo asked evo to not stream the event live and evo actually agreed to that because they really had no legal recourse otherwise and if nintendo didn't want them to stream it they had to agree to that and that resulted in a massive fan backlash across both the nintendo fan base and the competitive fighting game scene that ended up with nintendo relenting um, and allowing evo to stream the tournament since then nintendo hasn't tried to block any streams or make that move but It's a specter that hangs over the competitive Smash scene to this day, and just an ever-present reminder that, you know, if someone wanted to, for example, create a Smash World Tour or a bigger league to compete with something like the Call of Duty League or the Overwatch League for Smash, they would need to contend with Nintendo, and that's a big reason why people haven't tried to do that yet.
3: Okay, so let's talk about what it's like to be a professional video game player. It looks pretty easy to get involved in esports, right? Like I look up a tournament and it's like, oh, hey, pay your $80, $100 entrance fee. You'll enter, probably get knocked out relatively early.
1: How do I go from that to making this my job? The answer is it's incredibly difficult. Uh, Being an esports competitor means slogging away for potentially years as essentially an underpaid freelancer until you get a legitimate sponsorship and are signed by an org an organization that actually pays salary the entire esports industry including the player base is built on a mountain of freelancers who are basically donating their time and labor a lot of esports competitors especially those who are just starting out are living with their parents they're not paying rent they're probably not gainfully employed and just streaming for income i mean it requires a certain amount of privilege or a certain safety net to even Commit yourself to trying to become uh, an eSports competitor. So that's important to keep in mind. Um in terms of how you make the jump, uh, I don't have i mean, there there are a lot of different pathways. like i don't I don't have a clear answer to that because it's been different over time. I think it was a little easier back in the day when there were fewer competitors around. You could actually drive around to land tournaments, go to MLG events, and just distinguish yourself purely on the basis of your competitive skill. That's not really how it is anymore. You kind of need to both be an influencer and a player at the same time in order to succeed now. So a lot of the players who get noticed by big Valorant teams and signed by them start out as streamers, and they stream their own Valorant grind in order to bring attention to both their skills and their personalities. And the reason why it's important to have a personality to be signed is because teams no longer just want players who are good at playing. You need to be able to be a content creator as well. And by the way, it's exhausting. I mean, it's exhausting for these people. I know this. I've spoken to a lot of esports competitors who sort of burned out on it and then just became streamers full time, which, by the way, I mean, that's... What kind of consolation is that? Oh, you're burned out on flogging yourself to people, so you you just continue to do that, but don't compete anymore? Hopefully none of those people I spoke to are listening to this podcast because (laughs) it will just make them depressed. But it's incredibly difficult, and I have a lot of respect for them. I think the perception that it's just... Playing video games for a living and sitting around twiddling your thumbs is so unfair to these people, and people are starting to realize that, to be fair. Would you say most people in esports are actually making more of their revenue from like streaming then? So that's dependent on esport, actually. And since we're talking about Smash, I will say that the only people who are able to make a living off Smash in any capacity are probably the top 10, at most at fringe, top 20 players for any given Smash title. So like Super Smash Bros. Melee or Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. And then those 10 to 20 guys, most of their income is probably coming from streaming and donations from viewers. But once you get to the upper echelon, they get paid pretty nice salaries. And I think they get to keep at least a share of their tournament winnings as well. So it skews a little bit more. But you know, the more I think about it, in Smash, every top player makes more money from streaming than they do from their salaries across the board. But like I said, it's eSport dependent. That is certainly not the case for something like League of Legends. In League of Legends, well, first of all, they have salaries that are well above $100,000 a year. And I doubt that many of them are making as much money from that on streaming in part because also there are fewer League of Legends players who bother to invest in becoming streamers and influencers because they have this safety net of their salaries. Also, there are just a lot more salaried League of Legends players out there because the amount of money being pumped into League of Legends as a business is exponentially higher than Super Smash Bros. The top 100 League of Legends players can definitely make a living just off of their salaries because, you know, altogether, League of Legends employs far more than 100 players who compete for organizations that pay salaries. Uh, So, I mean, it's it's just vastly different. In in an esport like Smash that has very little institutional backing or financial support, 100% most of the income of top players comes from their streams. But for a big e-sport like League of Legends, it's flipped. Most of their income probably just comes from being League of Legends competitors.
3: Is that because it has support from the developers of League of Legends,
1: whereas Nintendo are a bit more lukewarm about Smash? 100%. I mean, League of Legends is a massively popular game, but Super Smash Bros. is much more popular if you look at the casual player base. So it doesn't have to do with the popularity of the game. It has to do with the amount of support that the developer gives to the competitive scene, full stop. So how do you get into one of those teams? They just have to see you streaming
3: or whatever. If in League of Legends, people don't stream as much, is that still the same? Or do people go to tournaments?
1: So in League of Legends, there's actually a farm system. They essentially have a minor league that is also run by Riot Games itself, and that gives people a chance to distinguish themselves as competitors without streaming. I would say still like, even for eSports like that, people who aren't trying to go through the farm system like that will just try to make a name for themselves as streamers and then just get noticed by a talent manager in that way. I would say that's pretty standard. Right. So Riot Games have fully set up League of
3: Legends as an eSport that's being officially run by Riot Games as an eSport. And they have like a farm system to get, new players in okay that's interesting and that's a much healthier industry than the sort of fan run one that's just butting up against nintendo and smash brothers
1: i mean it's it's night and day it's night and day it's funny because it's the same industry and people look at them in the same way but there are very few parallels to be drawn between the competitive league of legends scene and the competitive smash scene
3: So what do you do when you burn out from playing a game that gives you no institutional support? I don't know if this is true for League of Legends. I imagine it is, but when I watch a Smash tournament, one thing that always strikes me is how young everyone is. And it's not unusual for athletes in physical traditional sports to be young for obvious reasons, but in esports, it seems a little less intuitive why that might be.
1: Why is everyone so young? There are a few different factors. One of them, just to kind of harp on what I was saying before, is that financial aspect. When you're older, you have more responsibilities. It's harder to just sit in your parents' basement and grind away at a game and try to succeed, right? At a certain point, you know, if people haven't succeeded by a certain age, they'll probably just give up. Another reason is reaction time. I mean, you're right that it makes more sense that older people would be able to compete in video games compared to traditional physical sports. But the truth is, once you turn thirty, your reaction time drops off pretty precipitously in ways that would never come into play in real life, but are grievously uh, noticeable in esports. And that's why we see a lot of people uh, retiring, you know, once they get to their late twenties, early thirties. And then the last thing, uh, straight up, is just burnout. Burnout on that experience of being an influencer. Like I said, a lot of esports competitors start out when they're seventeen or eighteen. By the time they're 25 they've been streaming their whole lives in front of the public for seven years i mean that's just a grind no matter what
3: is there any like support for players or former players around that kind of burnout
1: a lot of organizations have different mental health initiatives it's something that they're starting to sort of pick up on now cloud nine for example signed a partnership with kaiser permanente that involved having mental health trainers come and train their players about best practices I actually like that partnership because then the players ended up turning into content they'd go on their own streams and then talk to their fans about mental health uh but i would say that is more the exception than the rule um without naming names i have a friend who is a doctor and he spent years basically just pitching his services to different esports organizations and telling them like you need someone to monitor both the mental and physical health of your players i'm telling you i mean for years he basically approached every major esports organization and was just totally shut down or they'd say that they were interested but they didn't have budget for it uh, or just not get back to him so i'm a little cynical about it Uh, i think things are changing and organizations are starting to pick up on the mental health struggles but it's just a lot more lucrative and a lot more efficient to just churn players and let people burn out and then pick up the new 18 year old who's excited and starry-eyed about getting paid to play video games than it is to invest in keeping people mentally healthy for the long run you know
3: when i think about traditional sports there's a pretty clear not that clear but when you leave professional sports as a you know an international athlete or something say even playing tennis and you're in the top 100 after that like a lot of people go into sports commentating or like punditry anything like that there's all kinds of stuff you can do post being an athlete and there's also a lot more money in it so they're probably pretty comfortable what happens to esports players after
1: they leave the industry there are some similar pathways some of them become commentators or casters um in their own right others just lean into twitch streaming um or influencing in in some form i would say far more esports competitors just go back to school or become normal people in some other capacity when they retire. Uh, and, And you know, maybe use their savings to start a business or something. But it's, it's a lot harder to monetize those skills. And the best way to do it is to become a Twitch streamer. And you know, again, if you're burnt out on that lifestyle, that's not a very appealing option.
3: Yeah, like it sounds to me like if you're if you're burnt out from Twitch streaming, and you don't have a ton of money because esports doesn't pay you very well. Like, you essentially just
1: have to start again, but you're in your late 20s now. Right, and like, this is becoming quote-unquote normal people having normal jobs. For example, I know a top Smash player who made a fair amount of money from streaming and competing during his time. He's not exactly retired now, but he's much less active as a player. But he used the money that he earned to buy a bunch of property that he turned into Airbnbs. That is now his main source of income. You know, I mean, he turned into a landlord. And that's just the kind of thing that people might do coming out of esports. Let's talk about
3: scholarships. Because I was a bit surprised to learn that there are esports scholarships now. And maybe it's because I'm British and sports scholarships themselves aren't really a big thing back home. But
1: yeah, I want to talk about them. How common are these scholarships for esports now? They're very widespread and it happened very quickly. This is kind of funny. You know, even three or four years ago, it was like a big news story when any university started offering esports scholarships. Like it would get to the top of the front page at Reddit the comments would be filled with skeptics, like what are they doing? And now it's just entirely standard. And no one even bats an eye when they see that, uh, you know, a college has an esports department or offers esports athletic scholarships. I don't think that the numbers rival the scholarships that are offered for traditional sports right now. But it's very standard. And um, there are a lot of organizations right now that are competing to become the NCAA of esports in the collegiate space. So yeah, I mean, I think Now is the time to get into collegiate esports if you're like a high school kid looking for a new path. I think there's more money and more scholarships being thrown around now than ever before. And maybe then there will be in like three or four years from now as well, just because there are so many organizations that are essentially paying kids to compete in collegiate esports. Why are these organizations interested in esports at all? So there are two different types of scholarships that are being provided for collegiate esports athletes right now. The first are the ones that are provided by the schools themselves. And I would say I mean, I don't think the schools are trying to turn esports into a profitable business, they just see having esports teams and offering esports scholarships as a good incentive to to bring students to them just like with sports, I think. And also, I mean, if you look at the esports community, I mean, it's very diverse, but I think overall tends to be a little more educated, a little more affluent than The general populace. And I think that's a population that colleges want to bring in as as potential students. So that's why colleges are providing eSports scholarships. There are also all of these organizations that are for profit companies trying to become the NCAA of eSports, that they are offering scholarships as incentives to get people to play. And then also Riot Games has its own League of Legends specific oversight organization that also gives scholarships. And both of those organizations are doing it. Because I think they can they believe they can turn collegiate esports leagues into a profitable business. For example, there's a company called Play Versus right now that is just stirring up some controversy because they claim that they have signed an exclusive license with companies like Riot Games to be the only operator of collegiate events. And they are charging schools a fee in order to compete in their league as well. I know that that is very lucrative. There's no way that the license fee that they paid Riot is as much as what they're squeezing all these schools for. It's a controversy because some people are claiming that it's not even legal to get a license like that. Um, And so it's dubious that could be enforced. But that is their business model. And I know it's made them a lot of money so far. Uh, Whether that becomes the sustainable business model in the long run is still up in the air. I wanted to ask you about Microsoft buying Activision and
3: Blizzard. Because everyone was saying, oh, it's to do with the metaverse. And I was like, why the fuck would that be the, to do with the metaverse? Like, Because they have World of Warcraft? Is that what you're getting? I don't know. Maybe
1: I was missing something. No, it was BS. Yeah. You think it's to do with esports, right? I do. I think broadly, I think they wanted to acquire a big bucket of gaming IP first and foremost. So even more than esports, I think... They wanted Ratchet and Clank and they wanted uh, Overwatch and uh, Call of Duty, you know, like just just having access to that IP is tremendous for Microsoft. So, like, to be clear, I don't think that esports led the acquisition, but I certainly think that esports was more of a factor than the metaverse. I mean, I'm I'm a metaverse reporter as well. I write about the metaverse in a fair amount. And there are gaming companies that purport to be building the metaverse, like like Epic Games, the developer of Fortnite. That's a big part of their messaging. Activision Blizzard has never made any claims about being a metaverse builder or shown its interest in in building the metaverse. So I think that the use of the term metaverse heavily in the messaging about the acquisition was just marketing hype, trying to capture some of the excitement around the term. The reason why I think esports was a bigger driver is because Microsoft is kind of just now investing in its own esports division. So, Microsoft just started the Halo Championship series, which is its attempt to turn the beloved first person shooter title Halo into an esport. It's gotten some eyes so far. Um, I think they're taking some time to build up their momentum. But with this acquisition of Activision Blizzard, they've also acquired the Overwatch League and the Call of Duty League. Now, we already saw that when Activision Blizzard created the Call of Duty League, they borrowed a ton of the infrastructure and the know how that they got from developing the Overwatch League um, in order to. Really accelerate the process of putting it together. And now Microsoft has all that talent and knowledge in house. Uh, So I have to imagine that they're going to apply some of the knowledge and the infrastructure developed by Activision Blizzard for their top level esports leagues for things like the Halo Championship series and perhaps other attempts to turn Microsoft IP into esports. So I kind of want to sort of look forward a bit now. Is there any hint of like
3: unionization in anywhere in esports?
1: A little bit. There is a Counter-Strike players organization that was formed with the intent of essentially doing collective bargaining for Counter-Strike players. Since then, though, I haven't really heard much from them. Um, And, you know, to be honest, I think the wave of unionization that's happening at the game developers themselves will have to happen first uh, in order for unionization to happen in esports. Because a lot of things that happen in esports are just downstream from general gaming.
3: How should the industry change to make this a place that... Doesn't burn people out and is a better place for people to work and continue making a living.
1: I think more focus on mental health is huge. I mean, that's kind of a obvious answer, but I think both leagues and esports organizations need to invest significantly in providing counseling and mental health services to their players. And also in I think more proactively investigating the toxic work environments uh, that can arise in these um in these companies for example you may have seen this but so tsm is one of the biggest esports organizations it it's valued at like a billion dollars or something ridiculous like that and reginald is a former league of legends player who was one of the founders of the organization and is now the leader of the organization uh, a couple of weeks ago the news broke that riot games was investigating him for allegations of abusive uh, management and creating a toxic work environment at TSM, which both applied to the people who worked for the organization in the front office and the players. He was supposedly incredibly abusive to the players and would berate them for underperforming and things like that. He's not the only manager like that in this space. And I mean, the fact that he's an old school player to me shows that that kind of behavior used to run rampant in esports. So leagues and organizations being more proactive about, combing out that kind of bad management, which is still pretty widespread, I think will also go a long way. And then the last thing is just paying people more. Straight up. I pointed out that esports isn't profitable in the first place. It's just a massive marketing expense. These big developers can absolutely afford to pay everyone more. They just don't because there's a culture of you should be grateful to be in this industry.
3: That was Alexander Lee, esports and games reporter at Digiday. We'll put his work in the show notes. Thanks also to Samuel Busby, a.k.a. DeBuzz. He was my coach who you heard at the start of the show. That's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our usual host and editor is Gordon Katick. I'm lead producer Jake Hoburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Research and show notes from Dave Moscrop. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. We have graphic designs by Dakota Coop. You can send us your feedback by emailing us, darts at citedmedia.ca, or you can tweet us at Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. You can join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Cited Media. We are backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. This episode is also part of a wider project about the emerging politics of video games, housed at UBC with advice from Leonard E. Nacky at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for listening.